0: what is up everyone welcome to education policy weekly i'm your host john phillips it's wednesday june 3rd 2020 and today with everything that is going on regarding police violence protests and a renewed vigor around public discourse surrounding racist policies and ideas that exist across america i thought it would be a good time to replay my conversation with kelly wickham hurst from last year when I had her on the Late Bell podcast. You can follow Kelly on Twitter at Mama. As we move into this next step of activism regarding police violence and police reform, we must also be very specific about what policies we want to have re-envision schools in the name of equity and against hate and white supremacy. As a white man, the best thing I can do is follow the lead of the amazing black activists and leaders that we have across this country right now. And for any white person listening to this, after you've educated yourself on these issues, the next step is to fall in line and do whatever these leaders ask of you. That is the best way to do good without doing unnecessary harm as well by inserting yourself and your voice into a conversation that calls for you to support rather than lead. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Kelly. Kelly, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule for being able to speak with me today.
1: John, I'm honored. Thank you.
0: So we're going to start off with a direct and maybe blunt question, but I think it's one that listeners need to hear your answer to. And that question is, to all the teachers and all the people out there who say that the act of teaching isn't political. What is your response?
1: Um, I usually, I hate when people do this, but I I respond with a question. (laughs) And the question is, you have to answer me this. What's one thing that you do on a daily basis or as a part of your life that is not political? Um, Even things that you don't recognize as politics or policies, you, you have policies at work that you have to follow. Uh, we have policies that govern us um, in all kinds of ways. And we work for the public. Uh, especially If you're a public school teacher, then um, what you are doing is political and you probably just don't realize it.
0: Right. And in addition to not realizing it, there's like a real danger in that, too. Because the second that you don't realize that the work that you're doing is political in nature, but also has wide-ranging impacts for how your students see themselves in the world, then that takes us steps away from what we're actually able to do in the classroom and as educators doing this work in classrooms, in schools, in communities, and all over the country.
1: That In the classroom especially, since you mentioned that, that I've never ever seen a syllabus from any educator that wasn't already politicized. Like what you choose to um, use in your classroom, all of the curriculum that we have, that's political too. Even if you don't realize that it took some policies and politics to get it into the curriculum, it is.
0: And the second that it seems like it's not political, that is because generally it is tied up in what is a elite white, generally male structure that we haven't shaken up in almost a century.
1: And the reason we haven't shaken it up is because those people who are in power, who are mostly what you just listed, Mm -hmm. white, male, privileged people, um, the reason that they can actually say that they don't like to be political or get into politics is because the policies are working for them. They actually set you up in a way that allowed you to be completely numb to the fact that you have been benefiting from it. So it's it's once your eyes are opened to that, you actually can't unsee it.
0: Right. It, it, there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother where all of the people in the friend group, they start recognizing that each person has a weird personality trait that is super annoying and they do this like glass shattering thing and i don't know when my glass shattered around the way that everything in this world is political but i'm so glad that it did and i'm also deeply saddened that it took until i was in college for that to happen like that is an indictment and if you go back and you look at the elementary school the middle school and the high school that i went to you would find that in terms of ratings, that my schools rate very well. Like, top of the public school list in Pennsylvania. And yet, that is such a shame that you are sending kids to some of the best colleges in the country. You are priming them to go go do good work, but you aren't activating them. And to anyone that hears this and says, like, well, I don't know if I want my student to be activated. Like, well, guess what? Do you want your student or your child to be someone who cares about others and who is empathetic and compassionate and loving and does work that matters and changes the world for the better? Or do you want them to go become an investment banker? And, you know, I suppose that that's your choice, but I'm getting increasingly tired of acting mm-hmm. as though I'm crazy for thinking that I want more people in this country who care about others and want to help others.
1: Yeah, but isn't, so thats the nefariousness of, um, and I'm just gonna name it, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That what the supremacy of whiteness does is that it actually, it keeps hidden from many of us how it's been operating um to benefit people, so it this it's very complicated. It's very sneaky. We have to have an understanding of the way that that even our I mean my own college education was a at a predominantly white institution, and that part of like that was political too. And I knew that if I wanted to know my own history, that white, that white Eurocentric history was just—it was standard, it was regulated, and everybody needed to know it. But if I wanted to know anything about being a black woman in America, it was an elective course for me. And so I have to—I had to elect to learn about it. And then that led me to unlearning a whole bunch of other stuff, and that has not stopped, and I don't think it will. And quite frankly, if it does, then I'm done learning and. I'm going to be useless. Um, But that was even supposed to be hidden from us in our undergraduate degrees in order to teach. And I think that it makes sense to understand how that happened, what was the history that made us this white educational institution in the United States in the first place. Um, And if we don't do that work, then of course, we're never going to see it. But we've got to look at history in a very different way than we have been.
0: And use the lessons that we can pull from the sheer amount of unlearning that needs to be done. Like everything that we need to unlearn, there are probably two, three, four, five people out there. For every person that's unlearning something, there are four or five in this country that believe every single thing that they heard. And and think about like yeah. Oklahoma, and you look at what they were fighting to do to whitewash history that is already whitewashed. I mean, the audacity to say, yeah, yeah, we don't want certain pieces of history included in a narrative that was already written by and in favor of whiteness is shocking to me. And so instead of us assuming that At some point, people are just going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe we can rethink this stuff. We need to be loud about it and we need to be assertive in our passion and our care for a generation that we want to not have to unlearn the things that we had to unlearn.
1: Well, so it's it's interesting you use Oklahoma because I have just been talking about this. Um, and about the ways in which now, of course, I run a nonprofit called Being Black at School, and, and obviously that's my advocacy lens. Um, but I also would be doing a disservice to other people of color to ignore their role in history, both um, in racist things that have happened to different uh, races, as well as the resistance movements that they've been a part of. And it was this year that Oklahoma, uh, a school district, said that students could not wear their native regalia at a graduation and I think that when we think about now this is something that we would have thought happened a very very long time ago and you could draw straight lines from from the Carlisle schools and from any of the um, ways in which the churches in this country were given diff- different denominations of churches were given different Native American tribes to and I'm going to put this in air quotes take care of and what that meant was stripping them of their culture cutting their hair refusing them to do their language, separating them from their families. But that's something that has been going on for hundreds of years. And here we are in 2019, and we're still making a political statement by saying that they cannot be fully themselves on a graduation stage. So even even that history is history many people don't know.
0: And that moment, it's also such a—white people love their power moves, Right. And that is such a power move, but it's also so saddening. Like for for me, like when I graduated from college, like I'm the first person in my family to ever do that. And that moment meant everything to me. And I can only imagine for people who overcame a hell of a lot more than I had to, those moments of graduation yeah. are moments of celebration. And to right. infringe upon... That moment that you and your family would remember for the rest of its life is so, it's galling in a lot of ways. And it it leads me to a topic that I think is really, really important for us to, to name and to think about. And so you spoke about your nonprofit. And one of the things that Being Black at School names is this idea that when we are pushing back against a lot of this white supremacy that has infected our schools and our country, that this work does not just happen in classrooms, but it also has to happen in larger communities and in city halls and state houses and everywhere. What from your time in education or just from your lived experience showed you that this is the reality that we are facing?
1: Uh, You know, I was just thinking first that I was also the first college graduate in my family. And uh, what that meant for me was very similar to what it meant for you. And it was because my father didn't graduate high school because they shut down his school um, after Brown versus Board of Education. He went to an all black school. That was his entire experience. And he didn't graduate at all. Um, I'm going to layer something on top of that. And that's the fact that I got pregnant in high school and that was not an excuse, according to my father, not to go get a college degree, um, which I didn't fully appreciate until, Oh, I would say in the last 10 years of my life, right. that I started to understand how history has affected him and what it, what it did in his expectations of me and how I was, you have all these opportunities he's, he's like, I'm not letting you waste it. So I think that what I've learned is that it is all community-based driven, like everything has to happen in communities. And some communities are really well organized and know how to fight against it. But I think we also have to give credence to the fact that white communities are also very well organized and because they hold the purse strings and because they make the policies and because those are people who are in positions of power. I think I read, I'm going to get this statistic wrong but it's something like 33 percent of this country is made up of white men That 33 percent is white men in particular and that they make up more than 80 something percent of boards of directors and that is a huge huge jump to say that this small group of people are actually affecting not just the larger politics and the larger policies at the federal level, but at the state and the local level, that's who is also controlling everything. And they'd like to say that they are not controlling, um, that they are just, I don't know, what do they think? That they tripped and fell into leadership? Right. Um, It was was their calling, you know,
0: they they, they just had a dream.
1: Yeah, Right. Um, And that that they they don't even give any credit to the fact that their ancestors were also in charge of that. Um, But we always talk in this way of of, in communities of this deficit. Well, this is what this community doesn't have. And it's because of this. And we make all kinds of excuses to say that that decimated communities are like that and that that it's their fault when the truth is actually much more complicated than that and that it is almost always, could be you can point back to white people in power who have actually created the conditions for that to even exist. Um, I think of that when we think about what's going on in the, at the border. And I, I say at the border, like we have one, but we're not paying any attention to, we have a whole other border with Canada that we're not really yes, talking we do. about.
0: Right. For some reason, <laughs> it's super weird, right?
1: <laughs> for some reason, right? And um, which should be scary. We should really be concerned about that. But that what we have done as a government is we have we have meddled in in other countries and we have funded wars and we have allowed dictatorships to happen. Um, we've done it behind the scenes. Again, it's very very sneaky. And then when those people seek asylum here because of what we've done, then we blame them for their their own conditions, as if they again they just tripped and fell into those conditions. Right. But I think that what happens is. For my work is that I go in communities and then I have to ask these questions and make connections and say, but who is here who's already doing this work? Somebody is here doing this work. Like, I'm not making this up. I stand on the shoulders of a whole bunch of people and a lot of people in history who have been resisting. And there are, there are races of people in this country who have resisted for centuries, including the Native Americans on whose land we are still on. Right. Um, and I, it, ju- it has to be a community connection. Schools cannot be the only conversation that we're having when we talk about, and I'm going to air quote this again because I really hate this phrase, the achievement gap, as if there's not a housing gap and a transportation gap and a job gap and a medical gap and all kinds of other things that have been created, but schools somehow get to talk about themselves as if, as if they are independent of all of those other systems in a community that are operating. Um, I, I always like to say when a problem becomes too big for society, we give it to schools to fix. <laughs> we we have school psychologists and social workers and we have police officers in buildings. Those are people who used to be out in the community doing work that are, that are now tasked to fix students. Not the system, they're supposed to fix students, and they're actually not only not fixing students; they're making everything worse. Uh, we're we're arresting children in school systems. We're handcuffing children. We're the the story this week was that the ten year old black boy who was playing dodgeball had had charges pressed against him. You know, from the from the white mother whose son got hit. Um, it's it's this idea that. We have to see our connections to the rest of our community if we're going to do this work. I, I don't go into schools and say, You're, all who I'm, this, you're the only people I'm working with. Right. I ask them, Who else? Bring, invite people in. This is a conversation for your community, and that is not just a school community.
0: I think so many people need to hear that, especially when we start thinking about going into a new school year. It's an opportunity to Open as a school to open doors and to think about like who are the people in our communities that really, really matter. And I think that you named something that is really, really key to a lot of this work. And that is, we can't all, in the same way that we can't do it alone as schools, we also need these conversations to be happening in. Communities that are a higher percentage uh, white than most people would ever say, like, oh no, we need to go talk to them. Like, no, we need to do this work everywhere. And it's so a, it
1: is absolutely everywhere.
0: And so I'm thinking of going again, going into the school year, I'm thinking of the white teachers that I know and all the white folks who want to help improve the lives of black and brown kids generally. And I, I want them to hear your answer to, number one, what does true allyship really look like? And secondly, what is one thing that white people love thinking is helping the causes of people that don't look like them, but is actually detrimental?
1: Well, I think one thing is actually, even in the word ally, I think that what happens with many white people is that they bestow that moniker on themselves and uh, like to, uh, unfortunately, pat themselves on the back for, you know, I I care about this community. Look at all the things that I'm doing for this community. And that actually gives no agency to the community itself. And it also is not looking at the leadership that's already in the community. Um, I think that when, when we talk about what communities are lacking, especially if they're all white communities. First, we have to ask this question. How did you get to be all white? That was not an accident. Your ancestors found ways in which to move you apart from these other people of color in this country to even create an all white environment. So look at your own history, look at the history of your school districts and how you came about and how you've been operating. Um, And I also, always point to um, there's a great book by Louise Derman Sparks who does anti-racism work and anti-bias work Um, she started doing it in uh, the preschool um, systems is that she's got a book called what if all the children are white like there's there's work to be done there too because what if what if your whole community is white you have to reckon with how you got there you have to reckon with well, my family's grown up on this land or I'm a you know ex generation person who's grown up here but how, how did that happen and also, who were the people that you actually moved off of that particular land and who are the people that you spent time getting away from if you don't talk about that stuff, you'll never ever do any other kind of internal work um, I also I, I usually tell people I hate the word ally because Allies can opt out, and they do all the time. Right. They, they do what's comfortable, what they feel like is going to protect them and keep them uh, in their proximity to whiteness and what it offers to them. I want an accomplice in this work yes, because accomplices, they know that they have to put their bodies on the line. They know that they have to put their reputations on the line. Um, and, you know, the, the phrase I usually use is accomplices will help you hide the body. Like I Right, their their their
0: name is on the rap sheet. A hundred percent.
1: That's right. That's right. And and you you only become an accomplice when what you're doing is you are seeding power and saying, This is shared here. Like I am not gonna come in and tell tell this community how to fix their community when my people broke it. Right. Um but we do that all the time. We do that in ways that are again, they're very sneaky. We put people of color in positions. Um, at different levels of, of an institution where we say, you know what, we need an equity person. Let's let's make sure that we get a person of color in yes. there. And, and I just, think, gosh, what a setup. Like, you want the person of color to fix what you broke? <laughs> you want the person of color to fix what has been operating for you? White people in institutions and whiteness will actually shut them down every single time. And they will find ways to operate that protect themselves. They'll say, we don't have the money for this. We don't have any funding for this. You fund what you, what you value. If you look at your values, that's where your money goes. And we're not doing a great job, not just in education. I, would, I blame every system. I name yes. every system here. that every system is operating in a way to protect itself, but then say that they're doing a good thing because, hey, we have an equity person. And then sometimes they throw up their hands as a system or an institution and say, well, we tried. We, we put this person in there and look, nothing's changed. Our scores are still the same. And, you know, I would say out of the people I talk to, 10 out of 10, every single time I ask them why they weren't able to move the needle in their institution, they'll say, because they won't listen to me, because they won't take my advice. They won't uh, take my leadership. I'm always pushed to the side as an extra or an additive allies are think of themselves. I believe as an additive, like this is the thing that we're just going to sprinkle on top and accomplices are like, I'm in the work. This is what I'm doing. And I'm taking my leadership from this particular marginalized community, whether it's the community of color, whether it's someone in the LGBTQIA community, um, whether it's in the disability community, those are the people you have to listen to. And if we take care of the most marginalized people in our systems, in our communities, then we actually take care of everyone. And whiteness doesn't want us to know that. And it doesn't want us to, it doesn't want to give up any power to yes. make that a possibility.
0: Yeah. As, as you were talking, all I could think about was how many moves are made. And this is micro political all the way up to federal policy. All we are, all people Are trying to do more often than not people that aren't accomplices like you said they want to make themselves look good and to say like well yeah like we wrote this policy and i we think it's a step in the right direction but they don't want to give up the power and to actually change transportation policy to change schooling policy to again we can name every single Facet of American life. If you wanted to change all of those pieces of our society, you could, but it would involve you giving up power. And we have teachers that are unwilling to give up power. They entered this profession, as gross as it is, they entered the profession because they like the idea. They may not name it, but they like the idea of being in charge of a bunch of people that can't do anything to them. And that runs all the way up to some of the people that have the most power in the public and private sectors in this country. If they wanted to solve this work, a lot of this work, they could, they just don't want to. And we just need to be... Pointed about that i'm tired of acting like everybody has good intentions forget that i'm done with that i'm very tired by it yeah
1: i don't assume good intentions because it's never ever defined um, what intentions are but i think that's a part of what's having us sort of uh, stop having good deep conversations about this is that we sometimes need to ask in a conversation like what is your definition of this because we're operating from two different perspectives um, and I think that for for many white people they think they believe that their intentions are always good and they're always pure because they haven't done the work to peel this all back and say, oh, wait, how am I operating out of a system of whiteness to even look at this like how is my lens preventing me from seeing that the actions that i'm I'm currently doing are are stopping the work So it's and I say that to just say, you know this is there are systemic levels to look at this. There are institutional levels, and there are personal levels. And it's a combination of all three. It's not just one thing that's going to get us there. We've got we've to be doing work at multiple places.
0: And that work can be daunting and it can be big, but it's the only way to get us where we need to go. And that leads really nicely into another idea that I think that people will want to hear from you. And so we're about to start a new school year. And even though I don't really feel like refreshed and ready to go into it, and maybe that's what most people feel, I don't really know. But (laughs) it is an opportunity to reframe the work that we do and make sure that we are operating as effectively for the students who need us the most as possible. And so... Mm-hmm. For, in your mind, if you could give three pieces of advice to either teachers or principals or community leaders that are involved in schools, what are three pieces of advice that you would give to those members of the work to make sure that they are able to start this year off as the one where we do our best work? Mm.
1: Uh, the first one is to ask the right question. Well, that's plural question. Ask yes. the right questions because the wrong questions uh, have been getting us the wrong solutions for centuries here. Um, and when we look at our data and schools are inundated with data, we have all kinds of ways to look at the data that we're given, but we're not asking the right questions about that data. And so much of that comes from the narrative from the community whose voices have been um, silenced and actively shut out. They're saying it, but schools aren't listening to it. So I would, I would say, you know, investigate the questions you ask around your data. Um, and if you don't think that you're doing a good job, all you need to do is ask a person from a marginalized community who uh, has no ties to you. And the reason I say have no ties to you is because another layer of what happens in institutions protect themselves as much as they can as well. Um, the second thing is, oh, I've been I've been really chewing on this second one for a very long time and I haven't figured out a way to verbalize it, but I'm gonna try. And that is this idea that um, we have to all be kind, uh, both in schools um, to one another as colleagues, that kindness is the thing that's going to save us. And kindness is a Band-Aid that goes on a broken arm. Um, I think that the way that we talk about kindness in schools or we do kindness week, that is not listening to marginalized communities. It's so shallow. There's no depth there. And it's, it just sounds horrible to people who are actively being harmed, um, to violence that is happening to those marginalized communities. So I think we need to like investigate this idea of kindness and what does that ideology really mean? Uh, and what does, like if we're going to be like kind, but also be anti-racist. How do you, how do you jar those two things together? And then um, the third thing, and I think what these all have in common is that these are all things that are, that can be weaponized is this idea that when you get into a school system, if it's your first year there or your first year in a new place is that the idea that we're all a family, we, we're not a family. My family does not treat me the way, every institution has ever treated me. Um, My family does not put parameters on me. I can show up as who I fully am without, without trying to make it palatable for whiteness. Um, So families are families and schools and institutions and places of work are, that's what they are. We have to name them what they are because what the expectation is, is that if we can get people to buy into this ideology, that we're all a family then we actually have to take a whole bunch of crap from people and we don't get to get down into like the real issues that are happening because we all have to be nice. This goes back to that kindness thing. Um, this new teachers moving into buildings are so afraid and I get it. I, everyone remembers their first year. And I remember just looking around and thinking, okay, I have to do what everybody else here is doing and I've got to do it just like they do it. And there's, Something that happens, and I don't know what the magical year is for everyone. It's all different. But at some point, you go, wait a minute, my voice sounds different, and I don't want to do it this particular way because we've always done it. I think you should, we should all push back on that when we hear it. Well, we've, this is how we've always done it. Well, okay, why have we done it that way, and who's been, who has been benefiting from doing it that way? When we ask questions like, okay, here's the new policy. Who's this going to harm, and who's this going to help? We got to ask that with every single policy, which goes back to your original question about politics, right? Everything helps some group and harms another group. If we can answer that question about who's going to be harmed and what that's going to look like for them, then we can't do that policy. Then we, we have to start over and ask why we're trying to implement that particular policy in the first place. Is it because we want that power? Is it because we want to control to go back to your question or your statement about, you know, there are, there are teachers who just want power. We have all met them. Um, We've all been, we've all been challenged by them. Hopefully we're not them, but those are the (laughs) people that get into those positions and go, we're going to do it this way forever because I'm the boss. You know, I've, I've heard teachers say things like, well, I don't have to respect kids. They have to respect me. Right. And I think, well, you just, you have no idea what, what that looks like then you have no idea what it looks like to respect a child like they have all kinds of autonomy that we steal from them in a school system and we we also forget and if i could add one more thing sorry before Don asked for three
0: (laughs) i love it because they're all tied it's all
1: tied it is all tied together right like none of these things operate distinct from the others is that we have to remember that children are developmentally appropriate for their age levels. And we all studied it. This was a part of our degree. This is a part of what we learned about education and in teaching. And as soon as we get in the classroom, all of that seems to go away. Um, So to understand that like a five-year-old is being developmentally appropriate when they're stomping their foot or rolling their eyes or (laughs) refusing to work, like, okay, that's what five-year-olds do. And the question really becomes, how do we work with this child and not punish them for the behavior that is actually expected, that all of our theorists have said, hey, this is what five-year-olds do. Hey, this is what middle schoolers are thinking about. We can't, don't throw that stuff away. Take that with you at all times. And I think what it does is it helps me as a teacher in the classroom strip away this, like, why am I so offended? that this child is sitting here refusing to work. Right. like It's not about me. That's, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. There are other things happening and functioning for this child that I have to get to the root of if I'm going to ever expect to move this child into a place where they are working or they are doing things. You know? So many children of color who are punished at really, really high rates, you know, three to six times as their white counterparts, right. is because they don't, they don't see themselves in the curriculum. Like, and they get tired of not seeing themselves. Black boys, the research tells us, give up on school by third grade. Third grade. Like, yeah. What is that? Eight? Eight yeah. years old? Yep. So we're talking about a child who hasn't even reached the double digits yet, who has understood that that system was not designed for him or her, that that, that system doesn't want to show them themselves, that that system wants them to only get wrapped up in white eurocentric history in our in our literature in our sciences in all of these things when they give up that's also developmentally appropriate and it's tied in with how we're doing curriculum and it is on us to fix that part not the child
0: and it's on us like everything that you said it's it's all it is on us to not just do it in our spaces too And I thought about this a lot last year because I had like, once I stopped thinking of myself as on, and I'm putting this in air quotes because I think it's important, but not on the the admin team or the teacher team. Like, no, I'm going to be on the side of students because they're the ones that we're here for. And, you know, in my space, that happens first. When you turn that light bulb on, it happens in your space first, right? You start seeing like, oh, so when that student comes here, she is able to have these conversations and be open. But when she goes down the hall, then all the things that lead to the adults in the building framing her as one way end up happening. But one thing that I'll also say is really, really important, and I think it stems from everything that you said, to fight back against these policies and to ask these questions and to think about kindness as living the work and your value set and having that value set be oriented towards helping the most vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. If you can do all of that, it doesn't just happen in your classroom. It happens when you're in the teacher's lounge. It happens when you're at back to school night and teachers are complaining about being there. And it happens everywhere. And right. so the, the the work that you said, it's not just a simple like, okay, I'll just check my mindset. Like, no, this work is, it's exhausting because we're fighting back against literally centuries of work that we need to just chisel away. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that that's also just um, an important, like it's a footnote on everything that you said, just that it doesn't stop just because you have made your classroom space be acceptable for you and students. Like that's not good enough. We need to keep pushing to make sure that not only is your space excellent, but you are out there. Just trying to make every single interaction that kids have every day,
1: good. Right,
0: right. Because all you know, it takes you, is one. You, kid. Reminded,
1: you You've reminded me that. Um, so this is the humility of this work: is that I've made plenty of mistakes. I have made lots and lots of mistakes that started in my own spaces. Once my own spaces began to creep out into other spaces, like you, like you just mentioned. So mm-hmm. I could make my classroom the most courageous and safe place for students. And that wouldn't really matter if you're, if that child goes down the hall, like you said, and I, I really think that what you were naming there was confirmation bias that we get, but yes. that, that is, as that's a toxic place to be to just be happy and content. Um, it's actually a place of complicity to say, I'm just going to offer, I'm going to offer this space. So here's, here's the mistake I made. I was a classroom teacher who was doing what I thought was right for every child in my classroom and wondering why that wasn't operating at the, at the, at the school level. And then I thought to myself, you know, I can actually fix the school if I just became the principal,
0: <laughs> which <laughs>
1: it's okay. If you laugh at me for that, because I laugh at myself because it's, it was an absurd thought for a 25 year old who was, a, you know, I was the department chair, the youngest department chair, <laughs> Thinking, I can make now. I can take this into this space, and so I worked on that. And then thought, well, I can take it into the larger space. The problem is, is that I was actually operating against a whole system, and I wasn't just in my classroom anymore. And right. that that whole system was going to be affected by all of the things that I was doing. But what I learned was that the system continues to protect itself because white people are still in control and in, they're in power. So when I became a part of an administrative team. And I wanted to be an an anti-racist. I wanted us to look at bias. I wanted us to question why there's such disparities. If I couldn't get those other administrators on board, then what space was I creating? Like, I I have this perceived power over a whole entire building, but I've got another two or three people working against me saying, that's not the way we do this. That's not the way this operates. And I I feel so foolish, but I name that and I talk about it quite often when I'm doing trainings and facilitating workshops is that until we see that all of our spaces are connected with one another, we're not going to do anything. And you're right. That's why it's exhausting, because I thought I was fixing one thing and I wasn't fixing anything um, and I needed to do it very differently. But that's also why after 23 years of spinning those wheels, I finally said, I cannot fix this from inside the system. I keep getting punished. I keep right. getting my hands slapped. I keep being told, hey, I know that we gave you this data that's broken down by race, Kelly, but don't talk about race when we're looking at the data. I'm like, how do you do that? How Like, how do I take my car to a mechanic and say, <laughs> yeah, I know this is the problem here that my brakes aren't working but do not talk to me about fixing my brakes like that makes no sense
0: it's it's what like works. the the game show where you what is it pyramid where you can't say the thing that yes. the person yes. actually has to yes. guess oh, oh I mean, my god i don't know right i don't know but i know what
1: you're talking about yes, yeah we, we can't even name the thing and that that if you do name race this is what i tell people if you want to get into this work if you want to finally start to peel back and and dig down and do this really, really grueling work of anti-racism, uh, you've got to name the things. And when you do that, you will be called a racist. I mean, I was called a racist yesterday on Twitter. Like, yesterday. I, I can almost tell you that, like, on a weekly basis. Like, yep, there, there was somebody that I had to block who right. called me a racist for naming a system that is protecting white men. Um, just get over that. Like it's going to happen, tell yourself it's going to happen and then keep it moving. You cannot let those kinds of things get you down and find your accomplices in this work because they're out there and just try to find out who's, who's going to go ahead and put themselves on the line because it's got to be them that does it. Right. And when I say them, I mean white people. Yes. And people who have that proximity to whiteness, like they've got to do this work as much as we do. Um, and I think that a lot of people think, well, you know, as long as I just don't like engage in racism. I'm like, listen, you're in a system that's engaged in racism. You're in a system that was built. It's baked into the DNA of every single system in this country. So right. you, you can't say that it's not a part of what you're doing. Like you you can't look back uh, to like all the way back to the 1500s or I, I would even say maybe later than that 1600s when we, when laws in this country started to become a part of what we were doing and then also went to the Supreme court that, that set us up. Like our Supreme court set us up as an apartheid nation. We don't like to name that. We'd like to say South Africa was apartheid. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We don't like to name, however, that Pusley V. Ferguson told us, yep. Separate is equal. Like you can absolutely have those two things. And you know that was later overturned by. Here's here's a great example of tying systems together. That's a court case that was about transportation. The thing that overturned it was Brown v. Board about education. Right. So these things are not disconnected. Our, our even our system, our government, our laws, everything. It's already been set up this way.
0: Right. And, and that that is a great because a lot of people have touch points with that case and then to recognize okay yes these are systemic interconnected challenges and so don't think that these things happen in silos because they don't
1: yeah you know do you i don't know if you know the book um by igoma aluo called so you want to talk about race yes and my one of my favorite lines in that book is when she says that systemic racism is a machine that runs whether we pull the levers or not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yep, there it is. I mean, like the ending to that is that that she says we have to actually dismantle the machine if we want to make change. So even when teachers say, I'm I'm not pulling the lever of racism, if you don't want the machine to run, you got to interrupt it. You got to stop it.
0: Right. You got to get 100 people on the tracks. And even then there's a there's a risk that you end up running and some people are going to get like you spoke to it wounded you over 23 years of continually trying to do the work and continually being a part of this larger system where there are just so many defenses up and so many shields and so many weapons that they have at their disposal that it weakens you over time because it is really hard to wake up every day and know I'm fighting for the right things, but I'm not in a position to actually not get hurt by this myself and to not have the people that I care about get hurt too. It's exhausting work, but the more people that we get to understand that we need to dismantle the whole thing then we can start actually seeing that change and that progress. Yeah. And it's such, it's such a gift.
1: When someone tells you, here's how I've been harmed. That's a gift. And instead of being defensive, if we could reframe it and say, look at this gift before me that another human being is actually telling me about the harm that they've experienced and that I could have the power to change it, it's a gift because lots of people of color are sick and tired of talking to white people and won't do it. Yes. And will say, I- I'm done. I'm, I'm, this is Which I is understand. The- I
0: never blame a I person do too. for do There's yeah. another
1: great book by Rennie at a lodge that says uh, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Yeah. Um, so the fact that some of us are still in this should be a gift and it should be seen as such. And it Truly. should be, that should be lifted up and to say what a gift that these people said that they're being hurt and that we have the power to actually help. How can we respond differently instead of being so hurt and in our feelings about it?
0: Well, I think that that's an optimistic note to end on. And I appreciate you taking your time out to speak with me. It means the world. And I think that everyone listening to this is going to take a lot away from all of the wisdom and all of the honesty that you shared today. So Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Thank you so much to Kelly for that conversation from last summer. If you want to support to her nonprofit, Being Black at School, then you can go to the link that is in the description box for this episode. If you want to support the protests that are currently going on across the country, there are tons of places that you can donate money to. There are protests happening every single day. And there are always black voices to amplify. Keep fighting for change. I'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening.